Well, good evening, uh, Harvest family. So good to be back with you and uh, to worship the Lord with you and to open God's Word. I invite you this evening to take your Bible out and turn with me to uh, the book of Isaiah, or the gospel according to Isaiah, uh, often referred to as the fifth gospel. And we're going to look tonight at chapter 26 and just two verses. We're going through the gospel of Isaiah in our morning services at Grace Fellowship. Normally, we take bigger chunks and chapters at a time, but not this one. When we covered this a couple of weeks ago, uh, there is so much here in verses 3 and 4. As you turn there, um, let me just say again, thank you for your partnership in the gospel. Um, it's hard to believe that over four years ago now, um, we joined the work here to plant a church in Zealand, and it'll be almost four years. Uh, next month, it'll be four years since we had our first public worship service, so time flies when you're having fun, and, and we've seen the Lord's kindness in so many uh, wonderful ways, so thank you for your, your partnership, your prayers, your encouragement. Isaiah 26, uh, verses 3 and 4, this is God's Word. You keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. May the Lord uh, add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, this is one of those wallward uh, passages in the Old Testament, you know, the kind that you um, that you'd write and grave on a block of wood in beautiful calligraphy and, and uh, purchase at a store uh, supported by Joanna Gaines, and you'd put in your living room or your kitchen, because uh, it is an incredible promise, isn't it? It really is. In a world of turmoil and upheaval, globally and culturally and personally, these two verses from the prophet Isaiah are a balm for us. The challenge, of course, is uh, to believe it, to believe these words, to live inside of the reality of these precious words. And not just when life is going along smoothly, not just on spring break, but in the dead of winter. In those seasons of hardship, when life isn't going as we had planned, when just about everything feels overwhelming to us, when we're stuck in the same besetting sin, when home life is upside down, when our future appears dark, when life just seems like it's spinning out of control. The, the people of Judah to whom Isaiah is speaking were staring overwhelming odds in the face. They were facing the imminent reality of being attacked by the Assyrian nation who was bigger than them, stronger than them. And they were notoriously savage, by the way, the Assyrians. The southern kingdom knew that if Assyria struck, that could be their end. Of course, they only had themselves to blame. Over and over again, in these opening chapters of the book of Isaiah, uh, they refuse to hear God's voice. They're plugging their ears to His Word. They're 
putting duct tape, as it were, over his mouth and over the prophet's mouth. They don't care. They want to do things their own way. Despite God's pleadings, despite God's warnings, despite God's promise to provide for them if they would turn to Him, they are tempted in the face of the Assyrian attack to lean upon Egypt instead, the the very nation that had enslaved them. And so they faced a choice. Would they take God at His word and entrust themselves to Him, which would mean that they would have to repent of their pride, or would they opt instead to lean upon Egypt? But that's where this text, written about 3,000 years ago, uh, lands here tonight. We are a people vastly different than those described in Isaiah's book, and yet we're not that different at all, are we? We're given a choice every single day. In whom will we trust? When everything around us and everything inside of us says to trust in things that are horizontal. And so tonight, this text counteracts that. It shows us not a carefree life, but it shows us who God is and why He is worthy of our trust. That's what we're going to consider this evening as we look at these two astonishing verses. First of all, uh, the promise uh, that God gives to us in these verses. Look with me at verse 3 of Isaiah 26. It says, you keep Him, you keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. You keep Him in perfect peace. Isn't that what any of us wants, to be in a place of rest. In fact, that's what every human heart longs for, a a contentedness, an ability to navigate life with a stability, which is actually quite Christ-like. Remember the scene in Mark's gospel where the disciples, some of them former fishermen, are frantically scurrying about on top because there's a great windstorm that's pounding and beating on the, on the boat, and underneath in the stern is Jesus of Nazareth, and He's sleeping. And He's not indifferent to their suffering. He's not aloof to their difficulty. Uh, in fact, in just a few moments, He will prove who He is as the divine Son of God, and with the word of His mouth, He will speak into the waters, and they will become immediately still. But also, as He sleeps, what a profound picture of His perfect rest in His Father. It's the kind of peace, this peace, that believes that God knows exactly what He's doing. It's a settled conviction that God is on my side, that God is for me. Romans 8 language, if God is for us in Jesus Christ, in the gospel, who can be against us? It's the kind of peace that surpasses understanding. That's beyond the ability even to articulate. It's an inner calm, one that's able to rest in the goodness of God and the wisdom of God and the sovereignty of a personal 
God. It's a kind of peace that a German woman named Katharina Winslegel wrote in a hymn, Be Still My Soul, which I understand you've sung fairly recently. Be still, my soul, she discovered, the Lord is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and provide. In every change, He faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, your best, your heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Be still, my soul, your God will undertake to guide the future as He has the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul, the waves and winds still know His voice, who ruled them while He dwelt below. This is not a promise of an easy life. Isaiah does not say, you take away all trouble for those who trust in you. But it is a a promise of peace, isn't it, within the storm, of rest in the life, in the face of hardship, of tranquility in the midst of suffering and pain. There's a dear brother at Grace Fellowship Church that is dying of inoperable cancer. His prognosis on a human level is extremely bleak, but… He, by the grace of God, through the help of the Holy Spirit, has a peace that surpasses understanding. Not that he doesn't have bad days, not that he doesn't wonder about the future and his wife and children and grandkids, but the living God who we worship tonight is keeping our brother in perfect peace as he's learned to trust in Him something the world can never know. That's the promise that God gives to Judah. But they had to trust Him. It wouldn't happen just automatically, this peace that the human heart longs for, and that's the promise that God gives to us as well. But we have to trust Him too. We're invited. And that's what we see secondly tonight, the call. So, if the, if the promise is that of peace, the call is the call to trust. To trust in what? Not in the strength of our faith, not in the resilience of, uh, resiliency of our trust, not even in the authenticity of our trust, but to learn to lean upon the one who is trustworthy. Verse 3 again, you keep him, the text says, in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you here it is, because He trusts in you. Verse 4, trust in the Lord forever. But what does that look like? What does trust look like when everything around us seems to be falling apart, when the waves are crashing in and life is confusing and we're not sure which way is up and which way is down? Because that's how life can often feel, like we're drowning a number of years ago now, my brother-in-law in northwest Iowa uh, was fishing a river and was caught under a current and was thrown out of the boat and was forced to swim for his life underwater. Uh, the biggest problem was that he didn't know if he had to go up or he had to go down. Now, the Lord was merciful and saved him, but that's how we can often feel 
I don't even know where to go. I don't even know where to start. I don't know if I have to go up or have to go down. I'm completely sideways, completely disoriented. What does trust actually look like? It's one of those words that we use a lot in the church. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge Him. But what does it look like this week? Don't mistake these verses in Isaiah 26 as a call to simply sit back and do nothing, as if trust is just a self-emptying exercise of the mind. No, trust is active. It's active. It's, it's intentional. It's, I would argue, tenacious. Trusting God when life isn't going as we had planned is tenacious, It's something we're called to do, not simply a feeling that mysteriously washes over us. And it's not something we just one day figure out and then it's smooth sailing from there. This is something that we need to get after every single day, something we need to fight for, something we need to take hold of. Uh, Notice who the hymn, Be Still My Soul, is speaking to. Uh, The author of it says, Be Still My Soul. Be still my soul. It's, it's profoundly personal, isn't it? Which faith always is. It's always personal. It's, it's the daily. It's the hourly. It's the minute, sometimes moment by moment fight to transfer my trust in me and in things horizontal to God. A couple of weeks ago when I preached on this text in Zealand, we had just found out that my uh, wife's sister, Rachel, who we knew had kidney cancer, found out that it had spread um, throughout her body. And so, preaching that in that context, what does it mean to trust the Lord in the face of that kind of news? In his book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts, Jerry Bridges uh, defines trust as this, quote, trust is not a passive state of mind. It is a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold of the promises of God and cling to them despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. It's a call not to be anxious, but rather to transfer our worry and our fear and our anxiety to God. Trust is resting in the object of living faith. It's the act of going to God instead of trying to control the narrative. In many ways, Isaiah 26 is the Old Testament version of Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, where Paul says, "'Do not be anxious about anything.'" But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. How do we know if we're actually living by faith, if we're actually leaning upon God, if we're actually walking in trust? The degree to which you and I take our sins, sorrows, and sufferings to God in prayer. Prayer is the practical application of what we're talking about tonight in so many ways, of making that turn 
from self and worry and burden and anxiety and learning to cast them upon God. And the peace of God, Paul says, which surpasses all understanding, notice the similarities, will guard or keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, God is not calling us tonight to some form of stiff, upper-lipped stoicism which pretends that everything is okay, where we're just supposed to suppress our pain and go on acting like everything is fine. No, we're invited to take our pain and our griefs and our sorrows to the living God. That's what trust is. Don't misunderstand. This isn't another law. God is not calling you to trust in your ability to trust, which sometimes we can fall into. Rather, He's calling us and inviting us to lean on Him, on the one who is trustworthy. Isaiah is writing at a time of great national upheaval for the people of Israel. They would soon be exiled from their land, driven from everything they've ever known, left to wonder if God had forsaken them completely. So, so these words aren't spoken in a vacuum. In fact, it would be these very words and promises like these words that these soon-to-be-exiled Israelites would need to tenaciously and vigorously cling to in a foreign land. Remember what God said, you keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. Calvin put it like this, these verses were written, says Calvin, so that, quote, they, the Israelites, might strengthen their hearts with this confidence and might also train up their children in this expectation and hand down these promises. And that's exactly what we're tasked with doing, brothers and sisters, to train up the next generation, not with a false message that says to our young people and kids that to be a Christian is easy, or that true followers of Jesus don't suffer, but in fact, in many ways, just the opposite. To know Jesus is to walk the road of Calvary. That's the call, to trust, to transfer our worry, our anxiety to Him, our fears, even and especially when everything inside us and everything outside of us is telling us to look within, to focus on that which is horizontal, to view the Assyrian onslaught and to take refuge instead, and how ironic is this, in the Egyptians despite the fact that Egypt was the very place where we had been enslaved. Listen, do not take refuge this evening and this week in things that are horizontal, in broken cisterns that can hold no water. Even ultimately, horizontally in God's people, though we all have a part to play as the body of Christ, we're all needy, we're all needed, and so we participate in God's mission in casting, uh, helping each other, praying for each other, bearing one another up, and yet ultimately we are called as God's people to help people to cast their burdens on Jesus, the one who can truly take that kind of weight. 
That's what we're called to do. To rest with the eyes of faith in the God who knows what He's doing and can do something about it. In fact, that's our third and final heading this evening. He gives, thirdly, a reason, a reason, a promise, a call, and a reason. Notice what Isaiah does. He doesn't attach some general truth uh, to his argument. He could have done that. He could have said in verse 4, trust in the Lord forever because He's God, and that would have been absolutely true. But as happens over and over again in the Bible, Isaiah connects this call to trust and this promise of peace with something very specific and tailored about the character of God. He says, listen, trust in the Lord forever, verse 4, why? On what basis? For the Lord God, he says, is an everlasting rock. He could have said a lot of things. The Lord God is, is your shepherd. The Lord God is your king. But here he says he is an everlasting rock. Why does he say that? Because he's solid. He's trustworthy. He's immovable. He's unshakable. He's unchangeable. His plans for your life and mine are fixed in the heavens. And this imagery of a rock underneath us is incredibly stabilizing in a world of change and disappointment when things are uncertain, when we don't know the future, and we can't make sense of the present. Why am I suffering the way that I am? Why do I have to walk through this hardship? Why this diagnosis? Why this difficulty? But underneath is the sure, immovable everlasting rock of ages, the one on whom we can put all of our weight. We don't have to tiptoe around. We don't have to walk on eggshells. We can firmly plant our strength and our weight upon Him. He's a rock. He's not sand. 20, 25 years ago, I remember my grandfather, my grandpa Scout, dying with hospice care in his farm home, in a bed, singing, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Grandpa knew that God was an everlasting rock. He's the Alpha, He's the Omega, He's the Ancient of Days. Therefore, friends, we can trust Him. Verse 3, you keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. To stay something is to attach it to something solid. So, every single hour we're invited to attach our fears, which are real, and our worries and our burdens to God. And it's in this act that He promises to give us peace because we're learning not to interpret God's character through our circumstances. We're learning to interpret our circumstances through God's character. What's an everlasting rock like? Jerry Bridges puts it this way. God, he says, does not delight in causing us to experience pain or heartache. He always has a purpose for the grief He allows to come into our lives. 
Most often, we do not know what that purpose is, but it is enough to know, he says, that his infinite wisdom and perfect love have determined that the particular sorrow is best for us. God, he says, never wastes pain. He never wastes pain. He always uses it to accomplish His purpose. And His purpose, says Bridges, is for His glory and our good. Therefore, we can trust Him when our hearts are aching or our bodies are racked with pain. Think about someone tonight that you trust completely. Someone that you trust completely. You, you, can, you can go to this person and you can tell him or her whatever is on your heart. It's a, probably a small list, isn't it? You're safe with that person. That person knows you. The person will listen to you. That person will love you, but he or she will also tell you what you need to hear gently. You're absolutely persuaded that that person has your best interest in mind. Well, God is like that, only infinitely better. He's someone that we can completely trust. which is quite a claim, isn't it? How can we know for sure that God is like that, that He's trustworthy, and therefore, how can we learn to transfer our trust away from ourselves and that which appears to be a good idea and trust in an invisible God? How can we know that He knows what He's doing and that whatever's happening to me right now isn't some form of punishment. And how do we know that what he's doing is really for our good, our best interest? Because what we're experiencing right now in a variety of ways doesn't feel very good. Oftentimes, it feels hard, even awful. But what if God was the kind of God who would come down to us to make peace with his enemies? And what if the way He did that was by dying on a cross, a death He did not deserve, but we did? And what if God ordained what was unfathomably difficult to accomplish what is absolutely astonishing, which is exactly what He's done? In fact, Christ Jesus our Lord is the rock the one who was struck, yes, by Moses' staff in the wilderness, but far more by the wrath of his Father, is the one in whom you and I are invited to place our ultimate trust. He alone can give us peace with God, but also our everyday, moment-by-moment, ordinary, where life meets the pavement, trust as we learn to rest in who He is. So that every joy or trial, 
falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of love, we may trust Him fully, all for us to do. They who trust Him wholly find Him wholly true. Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding, as He promised, perfect peace and rest. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. I hope you make them into wall words, frankly. These are precious promises, not meant to remain at 30,000 feet in some safe generality sort of way, but, but landing where you are, where I am this week when the windstorms come and our tendency is to go horizontal in that moment. May the Lord help us and give us grace to turn and to trust Him because of who He is and what He's proven. Amen? That's the God we serve. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need Your help in this. Lord, it's easy to preach on trust. It's easy to sing about trust. It's easy to let it uh, flow from our lips on Sundays when things are going okay. But Lord, it's a whole other thing entirely when, when the clouds are out and when uh, just hardship comes and life has a way of, of breaking us down, Lord. And, and there, everything inside of us wants to go inward. We want to look for help and hope inside of ourselves. Everything inside of us, Lord, wants to go horizontal. We want to look to broken cisterns. We want to look to Egypt. Even though we know Egypt is not the answer, Lord, that's where we were slaves. And yet we want to go back because we think we know better. We think we can fix it on our own. And so we want to, we want to remain in control. But, Lord, you're inviting us tenderly, clearly, passionately tonight to turn and to let go and to trust and to follow a God who we can know because you have made yourself known to us, a God who is entirely trustworthy, who has proven it by sending your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, upon the cross that we deserved, that we as sinners might be forgiven, and that we as sufferers and people who walk in sorrow might have great hope in the promises of the gospel. So, Lord, I pray that you would work that kind of confidence in those here at Harvest Church and in me and in the saints at Grace Fellowship. Lord, that we would be people of faith, people of trust. And, Lord, as you minister to us, even again today, we might go into our callings this week and point others to the Savior Jesus. It is in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand as we celebrate the Lord's goodness to us and wisdom for us as we sing, Like a River Glorious.
Amen. After the benediction, we'll conclude with two verses from It Is Well With My Soul. Receive God's blessing. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you.